Hey guys, welcome to the show. Tonight on the pod, we have singer, songwriter, guitar player extraordinaire. He was once from the Coastal Band, but now he's making his mark on the national music scene. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Austin Skinner. Austin, what is up, brother? How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Good, man. Glad you're glad you're here. How's things? Not too bad, all, all things considered. Um, you know, we, we really took a big slowdown back in March. Yeah. And, um, so only recently we've been starting to, to kind of get a little bit busier. You know, certain festivals, or I shouldn't say festivals, but concerts are starting to do the social distancing okay. thing. I, I, I played a show a couple of weeks ago at a, a new brewery just south of town. And uh, the way the, the structure was, you bought six tickets for a bigger price, and you were kind of bundled or potted together, and they called it a pod. Interesting. Um, so you're starting to see a lot of that for the social distancing thing, and um, some clubs are starting to open at 30% capacity and whatnot. So okay. it's you know we're slowly getting back to a little bit of normalcy, but I think we still may have a ways to go. Any uh, drive-in concerts lately? I know those have, those have been a thing. Well, they've been, I've heard about them. I, I just haven't done one personally. I haven't been to one. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird. You get, I feel like time goes on. If you're a musician, you get a little more picky about going to a show because, <laughs> I mean, you just, you don't want to, not to sound too negative, but, you know, you, you don't want to be disappointed and you don't want to, you know, you want to support, but at the same time, you know, you, you start to really get specific about i would be willing to go see this person in concert or, uh, yeah i hear the band with so and so is great so i'll go see them yeah um i just haven't done the driving thing yet, yeah yeah yeah. That, that's that's awesome well we will talk about covid but for right now i think what we like to start with is just a little bit of your background like what your connection is to a coastal band and maybe just a little bit about you know what what gave you the drive to pursue music as you have? Well, that's, I, yeah, that's a lot. I am from the coast of Bend, Kingsville, King Ranch area. Yeah. And, um, you know, mom and dad, mom's a singer songwriter or, or she, she says she's not anymore, but she, I think she still is. Uh, dad's a guitar player and, you know, has been a gear head and a gear nut for longer than I even knew what that was. And so, <laughs> um, you know, growing up, seeing him play in, in bars and clubs and stuff and hearing mom play around the house and all of that. And, and then um, got into my, my first band when I was 15 or so and lied my way into that band and, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, said I could play and sing. And I could kind of sing, but I really couldn't play. So it was kind of a good good way to uh, learn on the fly and, and, you know, be in a band with some dudes that were older than me and, and could, you know, tell me what I was doing wrong and show me how to do it right. And then, um, uh, went to music school and yeah. dropped out of that and then moved to Austin and Houston and played all over the, the Southern region of the U S for, oh, three years or so. And kind of danced a little tango with a few record labels and all of that in and out of a few bands, went back to music school. And then after, college eventually came to nashville because i'd always been curious about it i'd already lived in austin mm -hmm. and uh, i had a couple of friends who lived here who were doing well and who said you know you ought to give it a shot and see what you think i think you could do well I, you know and so that's how i ended up here all the way from 
the coastal dam. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a. I, I think that's a good 10, 15 years in a good two minutes, right? <laughs> I could have gone into more detail. Maybe maybe we will, but I just wanted to make it succinct as possible. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's cool. So, like, just question: What are some of your influence? What really kind of drew you to guitar and singing because some people kind of tend to go to one or the other but you you focused on both and you've excelled on both so what did that kind of look like who are your influences the earliest memory of someone doing both and doing them both well in my opinion would probably be the first conscious memory I could probably remember would be someone like Steve Warner okay yeah. who is a who was a big pop country artist in the 80s and he had a string of hits and, and he was you listen to Steve Warner now and you can hear the drum machines and you can hear the the real sterile metallic sounding Stratocaster uh you know which would be the active EMG pickup yeah. thing which was huge at the time plugging straight into the rack and then straight into the console and that was the tone and so you had that or, or solid state rolling jazz chorus stuff uh, but Steve, Steve was the guy who was singing and playing. He was playing leads and very well. He's kind of a jazz guy and he's kind of a rock guy. He's kind of a country guy. He's kind of a bluegrass guy. And then he was singing and writing songs. Um, and so, you know, maybe not the biggest influence on me just artistically, you know, but definitely who is the person that I can kind of remember doing it first or earliest. It, it'd probably be Steve Warner. And then of course, um, there's other influences that you sort of find out that are more akin that more speak to you, but he's the first for sure. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So was that like a high school or college thing? When did, when did for he come into? Yeah. Steve, Steve Warner. Oh no, Steve, Steve was, I'm six years old and, and I'm listening to mom's cassettes in the car and hearing songs like Linda and the weekend and um, his earlier stuff. And, so this idea and then learning and seeing him on TV and seeing him standing up there being front and center with a strat and singing these songs and then during a solo, just making it look real effortless and real, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing crazy flashy. Like at the time, Albert Lee was kind of on the scene flashing all over the country stuff. And uh, and then, of course, you had Brent Mason, who came just after in, in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. But again, just guitar players. And Steve was the guy who was out there front and center. And then shortly after Steve being a Texan, you you eventually are going to run into Steve Ray Vaughan somewhere. You're just going you know, <laughs> to trip over a rock and it's Stevie. And so then there's Stevie, who, like Steve, is singing and playing, and it's a strap. But Stevie is more this like this personality and he's more this flamboyant Texan and he's wearing cowboy boots and he's got his initials uh, on the guitar and he's got, you know, a very flamboyant feather in his hat and he's got the scarves and he kind of looks like Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, <laughs> but more Texan. And then, of course, his sound it was, you know, his ability to just play for 60 seconds of a solo and then go right back into singing more of a grittier, less polished uh, type of blues and whatnot. And uh, and so then you compare and contrast Steve and Stevie. And, no, that's kind of funny, Steve and Steve. <laughs> but you compare and contrast Steve and Stevie and it's like, okay, here's Steve Warner, kind of polished, kind of neat, clean cut, you know, clean playing, kind of Knopfler-esque. And then you got Stevie Ray Vaughan, who's just ripping. 
and kind of in the Johnny Winter style, kind of in the Albert King style. And uh, so then when you hit Stevie, then the world opens up and you start to see how the roots spread far down into the singer, guitar player person as one guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, that's, that's, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So one thing that we've been talking about a lot on this podcast is how a lot of the people that are being interviewed are kind of from the small town. So what do you think it is about people being from small towns that just give them almost an edge when they branch out? Because a lot of the guys that we've talked to have just been from, you know, the small towns in the coastal bend, and then they've moved to a bigger place where they just, they stick out. So what do you think, what do you think it is? Like, I like to, I like to get everybody's take. I think there are three (laughs) things to think about with that. I think number one, small town, boredom. (laughs) In terms of your individual musicianship, you are sitting alone at home. If you're musical, typically in a rural in rural America, you're sitting at home by yourself because, you know, if you're not out drinking and and hanging with your friends at the, you know, in the parking lot or, or if you're not doing sports and if you're not interested in rural things like typical rural ranching or, or, you know, fishing and stuff like that, you're going to be sitting at home pretty much by yourself until you can find a few other people to hang with. And so you're just bored and you're digging down deep. you got all this time on your hands and it's like, what are you going to do with this time? And there was a period where I was grounded for a semester and my parents said, you can't play in the band anymore and you can't drive, but we're not going to take your guitar away. <laughs> so it's like, well, that made that easy. Cause I wasn't playing video games anymore by that point. And, you know, what else did I have to do? So I think the small town thing, it's it, at, at its core, it's boredom and just time on your hands. <laughs> um, the second thing I would say contrasting that is if you're from a big city, it's, it's kind of easy to be crushed under the weight of some of that. Like, you know, if you're from the big city, you do have the chance for more like political connections, like knowing someone here or knowing someone there. Um, your dad or your your dad might run front of house for someone or your your uncle might have played piano for someone and that's what you hear around in Nashville all the time. Yeah. My my dad played for so and so during this set of years or my my uncle was the front of house for so and so during this section of their career. And and you know so you have that potential with living in a city like Nashville. But the flip side to that is the pressure is on you even more to not be distracted by getting by on hanging with your dad who might be doing well or hanging with your uncle who might be doing well. Because then you you, you kind of, you know, it's a weird trade-off because you see some guys who get to hang with their influences, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's awesome. Like if you got to grow up around Dan Huff, well, then it – that's cool. But there's also that expectation of like, man, you've got to grow up around someone big or someone famous or someone successful, someone talented, you better do something with it. So, but the, um, but then the third thing I would say, and I think I lost my train of thought, but as far as small towns go, you're, you're kind of known as the person in your town with the thing. So like you have the football star, you have these, the really great swimmer, you have, the guy that, you know, knocked up so-and-so, or you have, you know, you have, you have this identity that's sort of cast really early on with a nickname or something like, 
you know, and so if you're the music guy or if you're if you're like, oh, yeah, you know, so and so he sings or oh, he's a oh, he's pretty good at, at guitar or I remember hearing him at a party or something like that. And so the benefit is that you kind of get this individualistic cast really young in your life to say like, yes, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I do. And I don't do anything else. And then the shell shock that happens is, is when you leave small towns like I did, you realize that that's not good enough anymore. And it's like, I'm in a, you know, especially moving here, a million people. So it's about like San Antonio, mm-hmm. roughly. Yeah. And, but you get here and it's like, you go to a restaurant, a musician is serving you. You go to Starbucks, a barista is a songwriter. You go to a bar, she's, the bartender is a singer aspiring or, you know, and, and everyone's got an iron in the fire. And so all of a sudden it's like that, that identity of being the music person, it's like, well, now who are you? Now, what do you have to say? Now, what are you going to do about it? And some people leave, man, like in Nashville, there's maybe five, they call it five-year town, 10-year town, two-year town, whatever. (laughs) At the end of the day, like you'll either stick it out as long as you can and, and as long as you obviously financially can, as long as you can with your reputation of doing good work, as long as you can with your emotional, just constant, you know, like, is this going to be a good month or a bad month? Or is this tour going to get canceled because of a pandemic? Or what Mm -hmm. are we going to do? Um, And so that's where that tends to, you know, you find out kind of, okay, I I said this about myself in a town of 30,000 people. Can I say this about myself in a town of a million who, you know, people get in record deals? So I know that's a lot, but ultimately I think you have boredom and then, with the big city, you have the, op- the the opposite, which is getting lost in all of the busy. And then you have the identity, back to the small town, you have the identity of, can I carry this identity from, you know, Kansas City, Missouri to Nashville? Or can I carry this identity from, you know, Killeen, Texas to Austin or whatever the case may be? Yeah, Man, that's yeah. good stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah. It's a great segue great. into talking about your identity as an artist. So you released an EP a couple years ago that was really, really big, and it sounded big. It had some great, great songs on there. So talk about your like influences with those and where you are now, if you can, because I know you're writing right now, and the last time I spoke to you, you're like, yeah, it's getting ready. So excited about that, but would lo- like you. maybe a little bit of a a little interesting uh stuff about where you were and where you are sure well i had played sideman for a long time and i I still do um because it's a certain skill set to be able to do all that being a sideman requires but at the same time when the artist that you're with is taking a break or is is getting married or is going through something difficult and can't play you're kind of left, <clears throat> excuse me, out there to figure it out. Yeah. And I was, thankfully, I've never been short on people who believed in me and who complimented me and encouraged me to do, do the thing, you know, be, be the man, be the artist, be the artist. Mm. And so uh, round about 2012, I started writing again and not for other people, but for myself. And 
one of the artist gigs that I had, she got married and we were all super happy for her, yeah. but she got married. So there was a life change. And so the rest of us in the band were kind of like, what are we going to do now? And so I saw an opportunity in that moment around about 2013 to be the man, to be the artist. Um, and I did. And so I had some songs and I kept writing and kept writing. And I took the guys, the band downtown to the bars and the hockey tonks and we worked it out and, you know, got, got used to playing without her, even though we missed her and worked up some of my material and the guys just loved it. And, and all the people at the time in, in Nashville that I was connected with kept using this term R and B and some of them <clears throat> even went as far as to compare my sound and my vocal stylings with other R&B singers. Mm. And so then the process of studio shopping began. How do you find a studio that can capture, not just you, but like can inspire you and can capture the essence of what it is that you're doing and what it is that people are saying, this is, seems to be really what you're good at. So is R&B. And so I started looking around and I, I met a guy named Word Strickland, who is a Berkeley College of Music grad. And he's a phenomenal guitar player and a sideman and a hilarious guy. He would drive a motorcycle, a Har you'd appreciate this, he drove a Harley downtown <laughs> nice. and would park it in the alley. And he would have his double gig bag and his Ampless solution, like a pedal, like a Helix or, or a Line 6, something. And that was his rig. And he would shred like nobody. Anyway, he connected <laughs> me with John Gifford, who worked as the main engineer at Muscle Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Yeah. And so I began to talk to John and we formed a good friendship over the course of some months. And then eventually I booked some, some sessions about two weeks worth. And we went down there and we knocked it out in four different groupings. So it was, you know, three days here, three days here and so on. And, uh, and we got, you know, probably 15, 16 songs done. Wow. And then after that, you start, you, you, you sit down and you're like, okay, we've got all these songs, but what songs work well together in a package? Cause you know, at the time, I wasn't really thinking in terms of singles. I was thinking like, no, I've got to put these out in a group and mm. make it like an album or make it like an EP or something. And so we picked our, our three or four favorites and put them out. And, and all the, all the press that we got were, was great. It was fantastic. Like nobody really had a negative thing to say, but then there's this weird reality that hits, that hit, that hit me, especially, which is, as, as good as it might sound, as, as much praise as it might have gotten, it didn't get the traction that we had hoped for. Mm. And that happens a lot. And there was no, it wasn't any like a hard feelings or anything. But the thing is, is you start asking yourself, well, what went wrong or what didn't happen? And sometimes it's luck. Well, what I found was, while I had all the support to do R&B, what I realized was that when most people look at a six foot two white guy from Texas <laughs> with a beard, with some long hair, R&B, classical, classic R&B is not the first thing they think of. You know, you look at someone like Alan Stone from the East Coast and it's like, he's, he looks kind of 
eccentric but nerdy and kind of cool but then you hear him and it's so unabashedly r&b that you're just completely sold and what that told me and and others i mean there's other you know white dudes doing r&b and girls you need know, joss stone michael mcdonald there's tons of them mm-hmm. and it's not that it's a, so much a, a white limitation but that it was a i just wasn't selling it i couldn't mm-hmm. sell it like and that's a hard more of a business reality to come to the conclusion of it's like yeah you're good guy but like th- this people aren't buying what you're selling huh. and so once i kind of realized that right about that same time this dude comes out named or i just heard of this dude named chris stapleton mm-hmm. and chris stapleton was like a legend in these parts already because he had been writing songs for everybody he had a publishing deal everyone knew him as the lead singer of this band called the steel drivers and of course me not being from here i didn't know this stuff so i hear chris stapleton as a solo act and i'm like blown away because here he's being soulful there's some r&b in there it's stripped down it's kind of sounds like memphis a little bit it's kind of greasy yeah and yet it's it's somehow still country ish and 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 it just you know it blew me away and then i heard another guy named jason isbell who again i never heard of before but he was this <laughs> legend in the area from and and here's a funny thing about side note i should have known who jason was because at fame at the studio there were master tapes in the room with his name on them and i knew that he had recorded there but it just never you know i wasn't looking at a name like jason isbell when there was like you know, Mavis Staples in, in you know, on the tapes or, <laughs> or Alicia Keys on the tapes. Like, I don't know who Jason yes. is at that time when you're seeing that. So anyway, he was the lead singer of a band called the Drive-By Truckers. Mm-hmm. Again, I didn't know that, but now I knew. <laughs> and so here are these two guys kind of seemingly on the outskirts of what would be considered country music or, or Nashville country music. And they're singing with so much soul and so much passion and so much fire and then this here's here's the plus side and here's where it came together for me they're both singer guitar players Hmm. jason isbell we all know is a you know he's got a great vintage collection and he's mr guitar player and chris stapleton keeps it more simple with the thing it's like a jazz master some jaguar or something throw around and so here's again two lead singers songwriters and guitar players and i'm like okay i need to figure out like what's going on here and i need to draw some inspiration not to copy it or anything but just to like learn something yeah 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 and so that's what i started doing so that is more of where the sound and and me as an artist but that's where the sound has sort of gone is more of a not texas southern but like you know the south southern but also mixed in with that r&b roots and you know, the singer guitar player thing with the Nashville twang, you know, it's hard describing like what you're doing because it's better to just let people make their own minds up. But if, you know, if you're asking about the process of it all, that's how I would say it came about. So that's where I am today. You know, learned a lot of lessons about what people think of when they look at you and what people think when they see you versus when they hear you Mm. And the, the reality of business is that you have to sell something and all of that. And I don't believe, because I hear it a lot, or I've, I've, people ask the natural question is, do you feel like you sold out or do you feel like you're catering or pandering? Yeah. And the answer is no. 
the 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 and the, the real answer is that I love music and I love being a singer and a guitar player and I love writing songs. And so if the knobs in the studio happen to be turned a little bit of a different way when I when we start to record, what that 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 to me that that's not like changing your art or selling out. That's just dialing in a different sound on your gear. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And that literally is the difference sonically between a record like an Alan Stone record versus like a Chris Stapleton record. The settings are just a little different. Over mm -hmm. here on Alan's, it's going to be a little bit, you know, cleaner in this area. And on the Stapleton, it's going to be a little dirtier in this area. And the vocal inflection might be different. But artistically, is it somehow like magically different? No, these, these are two amazing artists who write and sing. And in Chris's case, he plays. And you know, capturing that in an honest way is really all that finding a studio is about. And, you know, that's why I say it's, it's kind of best to let people make up their own mind. But, <laughs> yeah, know. man, that's, that's cool. So when can we expect maybe, maybe some, some tastings of the new a stuff? A single will be put out uh, in October, excuse me, November, the second week of November of oh, this amazing. year. So, nice dude. Yeah. We've been sitting on it for a while. Um, like I said, just, you know, financial constraints of, of the current climate and everything, but we're still here and we're just getting back to normal or starting to just like most people. Yeah. Did you record that one at fame too? No, that one is not at fame. That one's actually at a local studio here. Uh, so after the fame situation, fame from here is about two and a half hours, which is not oh, bad at all. Yeah. You cross over to Alabama and, and you know, you're pretty much there. And the plus side is that there's a water burger nearby. <laughs> So, so that, and that's a whole nother conversation, but, uh, but there's a guy here in town named Will, who is from Chicago, moved down here. And I used to see Will at my gigs at the Tin Roof and Bourbon Street Blues and Boogie Bar in Pritchard's Alley. And he was this kind of long gangly dude with glasses, kind of a hipster looking guy, but really into guitar and really into music. And I'd always see him at all the you know, I'd see him at several of my gigs, but then I also would see him at some of the other shows that I would go watch to see my buddies play. So he and I eventually got to chatting, and he was opening a studio here in town nice. in the old Lehman Drug Company building, which is, uh, well, geog geographically, it doesn't matter to you, but but Lehman Drug Company is where Johnny Cash used to get his prescriptions filled. Nice. So there's that. But he bought the old Lehman Drug Company building and built a studio on the second floor. And he outfitted it with, you know, some really basics. It's a simple setup, but the console he got, and I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it's it's basically this super retro type console. Um Real simple setup, but man, we went in there for a jam session one night late after NAM in August of 2017 before he had truly opened. Mm -hmm. And it was a NAM jam, a summer NAM jam. And I was blown away with the space. Number one, it was beautiful. Yeah. But then secondly, the sounds like standing in the control room and just hearing what the musicians in the other room were, I was like, this is, this is good. This is really sounding good. And I could totally record here and for to find a local place 15 minutes from me versus driving two and a half hours. It was like, okay, it's not fame, but man, if I have to be in Nashville recording, 
this is it. This is easy. This is easy. Yeah. So easy. So we spent a lot of time there uh, through the years since then, and he's doing really well. He does a lot of video content for um, a lot of different random things. You just have to check out his, his YouTube presence. And I've stuff, seen, but. yeah, I've seen a bunch. Like, uh, who is it? Ariel Posen did a show there, and it was crazy. Yeah. And so did uh, Julian Lodge. Like that place is, it looks beautiful. And not only that, but you can fit a crowd down, down on the first floor and have mm-hmm. a nice stage. So it's like, man, that is amazing. That's, that's really cool. I'm looking forward to that. Well, speaking yeah. of, speaking of gear, you know, we're gearheads. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. This is where, this is where the audience tunes out. No, no. We have a big, a big gear community down here. So it's just like, man, we have to talk about gear because you're a great influence on me and i love to hear that oh yeah do you tell you you always tell me what to buy (laughs) i tell you what to sell but you don't sell it (laughs) we had nick in here uh last two weeks ago and nick garcia yeah 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 and he was saying the same thing to me and i was like i'm just relaying stuff i hear from austin so (laughs) you guys this is so now i know now i know (laughs) so what's going on with the gear we we have a few different you know segments but uh the house is on fire what are you grabbing everybody's safe every everybody's safe what are you grabbing well if i could grab one guitar it would be this one, which, and this is, there's nothing inherently vintage or rare about this instrument. It's just a great example for what it is. It's a 1996 Gibson Nashville Custom Shop 335. Nice. And I have changed a lot of things about it, pickups, pots. Uh, I've never had it refretted. I've never had to, which is kind of amazing. Uh, I've put a Bigsby on it. I've taken the Bigsby off. Um, this thing just can't sound bad. Yeah. Um, I think what it was originally was I was watching Austin City Limits years ago, maybe around 2000 or 2001. That's not accurate. It was at it was at Antones in Austin, and it was '99, and David Grissom was there. And he was playing a red 335. And it didn't look vintage. Obviously, David without a Paul Reed Smith is going to make you go, what? <laughs> but then, yeah, because, you know, like he's Mr. Paul Reed. But then, uh, you know, it was a red 335. And so automatically, I liked red 335s because he's just, you know, incredible player. And, uh, and then I managed to find something on the internet back then, or it was a magazine interview somewhere. And it, it said it was a 96 or seven Gibson custom shop, Nashville, 335. Wow. And when I say Nashville, I just mean built in Nashville, not Memphis. So at that point I knew, okay, reissue guitars can't be that bad if he's using one and i think you even had a reissue fender and it was a great guitar so i knew that wasn't bad (laughs) um you know you see reissues all the time and so i found this one on and this is like a shame to admit but this was actually an ebay purchase and the guy had had an error in the listing Oh. And so I was able to get this guitar for eighteen hundred bucks, which is not <laughs> no small amount. But for one of these, yeah. for a three Nashville three thirty five, 
that is unheard of because now brand new, I, I think they might be $7,000 or oh, something like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Anything custom shop was like, Oh, it's top tier. Yeah. 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 Like it wasn't like it was a heritage series or a custom, uh, a custom classic series. Um, because I think Gibson had the 1960 T Les Paul or 1960 Les Paul, which was supposed to like give you the impression of a 1960 Les Paul, but it, didn't i mean <laughs> as a kid in guitar center you're gonna you're gonna go for whatever but um but then you start to figure out little little differences and all that but anyway i snagged this one off the internet a guy in arizona had it so when i got it it was it was so dry and 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 mm. cracked i mean it's still got the checking on the binding um but the fretboard was dry as a bone i think i took this rusted strings off of it and and just threw oil on that fretboard for a week and it just drank it up drank it up wow. and uh and then i finally put some strings on it let it get set to the climate that i was in set the neck and you know kind of set the the twisting of the neck and then all that stuff and just kind of put a rough setup on it and played it strummed a chord and i was like well this is great like this is perfect this exact this sounds exactly like some of those old Grissom sounds that I had heard on the Storyville records and line. Mm. And so over the years, I've just tweaked it as you get into it more. So, I mean, I've had, I've had Lawler low wines in here. I've had, um, uh, Lindy Fraylin's in here. I've had the Lindy Fraylin true sixties, which was the collab with, with, um, what's that company called? Um, they do all the wiring, and stuff in Emerson? Kentucky. Um, what'd you say? Emerson? No, Lindy Fralin did a collab called the True 60 with RS Guitar Works. Oh, RS. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, I even tried some of those single coil side, the humbucker size single coils, <laughs> mixing and matching, just playing with it. And then I came across a guy named Tom Holmes who lives in Joelton, Tennessee, which is probably an hour away or so. And I heard the the myth, you know, the this is going back so internet old school. You're talking like HarmonyCentral.com. <laughs> Daddy's uh, junkie music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tor, uh, not Torres, but what was the other one? There was Torres had a forum, but then there was, there was some other one that's not around anymore. Anyway, so dudes were talking about how this guy like got the original winding machines from Gibson mm. back when Gibson left the, the Northeast or the North and came down here. And so that was the story. And everyone who had his pickups swore by him. And um, I came across a set used and put them not in this guitar, but I put them in a Les Paul. And it was like, yes. I, by this point, I had heard enough vintage Les Pauls to kind of make the comparison where old Les Pauls don't really sound like humbuckers as you as we think. They they actually sound like single coils, yes. just a little bigger and without the hum. So it's almost like, you know, you think of the term humbucker and it makes a lot of sense if you can kind of rewind the clock in your mind to a time when they were winding pickups and then they sort of like wound a little bit different way a little extra figure eight pattern or whatever it's supposed to be and took the hum out and they were done and they didn't wax pot them mm -hmm. and so 
you know, they had to, they had to wind them really tight and make sure all the parts fit really well together so that there was no, you know, micro vibrations in there and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so that windings wouldn't move around and possibly break. Cause you know, that <laughs> wire they wind with, it's like, it's not even like dental floss. It's like yeah. super. But, uh, so that was my first set of homes. And after that I was like, okay, I should try and get some more of these. And the wait was really, really a long time from him, but kind of like people do now with analog man, King of tones. I just emailed his wife and <laughs> said, Hey, I'd like a few, I need some pickups. This is what I want. This is what I need. How long is the wait? She goes, Oh, I don't know, but we'll just let you know when they're, when, when Tom can get back, he's been really sick and said, okay, no problem. And maybe, I don't know, six months had passed and she emailed me and she said, Hey, we've had a lot of people, you know, refuse orders. Do you want your pickups? And I said, well, sure. And she said, okay, well, I've got a few sets, you know, and so I bought them all and, uh, put them in every guitar that I had that took humbuckers at the time. Wow. And so, you know, I'm a big believer and I've had other pickups and there's great, there's other great pickups out there. Like, I don't think anything, and this is kind of maybe not the segue or whatever, but I'm kind of of the belief that like nothing sucks anymore. Yeah. yeah like yeah, it's yeah. kind of hard to run across something that just sucks. Like back when we were kids, like you could plug into a pedal and be like, Oh God, this sucks because it just sounded unbearable. Like whatever it, that piece of equipment did, it was like, why does this suck so bad? It's unbearable at these <laughs> settings. And you know, you can't use it for anything, but like these little bitty settings and it's okay. But then every other way it sucks or, you know, this amplifier sucks because it constantly breaks or this amp sucks because, you know, it's got too much high end or this guitar sucks because it's too blah, blah, blah. Like very few things like actually suck anymore. And so now we're getting into an age into a, you know, with the internet and how all of that has worked with forums and pages and reverb giving a lot of content and pro guitar shop doing demos. Yep. Um, you know, we're getting into this age now where <clears throat> I think people are hair splitting over very, very, very fine details that I think when you add them up matter, but I think if you don't know how to put those details into a context, you're going to miss why these things don't suck. And you're going to miss why like, why does a tube screamer not suck? You know, well, because like when your amp is cranked and you hit that pedal, it's going to give it a boost in the mids and it's going to, you know, have a little soft clipping, but it's also going to help take some of that bass away so that your amp isn't like farting and flubbing. That's mm -hmm. why a tube screamer doesn't suck. <laughs> but to say like to someone who's never played through a loud amp, why does a tube screamer not suck? They're going to say, oh, it's transparent. It's smooth. Everyone's used it. Well, that's hardly an analysis, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, it, but you gotta, you know, people have to learn these things, and so I would say that for me, the homes thing, it wasn't just about homes or anything like that. It was like for the first time in my life, I heard a humbucker that a reminded me of the vintage Les Pauls that I had gotten personally to mess with, and b it was the first time I'd heard a humbucker that didn't sound like it was kind of covered up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you learn, why is that? Well, wax potting is a thing. And you learn about 
the thinness of the covers and you learn about magnet types and you learn about winding counts and winding thread thickness and it's like okay i've kind of got the basics but i'm not going to obsess over it i just know that i really like this thing and now man you can get great vintage sounding pickups from uh tons of people you yeah. know true fraylin still is one of the best i think i had fraylin those true 60 fraylins i had those for I know I kind of sound like I undersold it, but I think I had those for like five years. Oh. And that was all that I had for a long time. I had three sets of those. And, um, and you know, for, um, what was the other? Lawlers? I had those. I had Lawlers for six years. Yeah. You know, I had Lawlers for a long time, the low ones, and they were clear and they sounded fine. Um, you know, so for me, it's just been a hair splitting. You kind of inch a little closer every once in a while <laughs> to a sound in your, you know, you, you plug into your cable every day and then someone loans you their cable and you're like, well, that sounds a little bit better. I'm <laughs> going to get five of these and throw all my old cables away or sell them. Yeah. And so that's kind of like how it happens. You know, it's like when people hear a king of tone for the first time, they're like, well, that sounds better than five of the overdrives I have. Why is that? Well, it sounds more open and it doesn't have the mid thing that most people actually don't like, even though you should, yeah. I think, <laughs> uh, you know, little things like that. It's like, oh, that's why that sounds better. And the confusion I think happens when you run into a gear company that's scarce in number with their production or it's just got a long waiting list. And in the case of analog, man, it's all work. That, that hype is real. I've, I've had three King of Tones and every single one was great. But like with Spaceman, Spaceman's one, yeah, limited numbers. So you're like forced to make a decision. It's like, oh my God, do I do I do I do this? Do I not do this? <laughs> it's 350 bucks right now, or it could be 800 bucks in six months. Yeah. What do I do? And so you're forced to make this decision, and then you get the pedal in. Let's say you bought it new, you get your pedal in. And you're kind of like forcing yourself to see the beauty in it and to see the utility in it. Never mind that they look gorgeous. And most of those spacemen, in fact, every spaceman I've ever played sounded amazing. But not every company is like Spaceman, where everything that they put out in limited number actually matches the hype. Like yeah. it's worth the hype with some of it, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the online and the internet and the the dudes who maybe don't get to play as much, they might be at a slight disadvantage because it's like they just know that they've got these these name these pieces of gear by name or by by Instagram look, but it's like okay, but what are you doing with that? Yeah. And as a guitar person yourself, I'm sure you see that sometimes at least. I mean, I just know what I like, and I know what I've I've sold more gear than <laughs> I've ever that I ever thought I would own. I can't even put a number on it. It's embarrassing. But I've honed it down now to where I don't have a pedal drawer. I don't have a closet full of amps or a, or a cartage company full of amps anymore. I don't have closets full of guitars like uh, some people I know. And it's because I, I know what I really like and I know it's my easy go-to and I can just go and grab it, Yeah. right? Yeah. So, I, I feel like Texas players, especially especially with the, the Stevie thing, is we like to be different. We like to have our sound. That's that's always been. So how close are you to finding, like, your, like, this is me, like it or not, this is me. Oh, I'm, I'm very, very 
happy to, to report that I believe I am there. Nice, or, or, nice. Or, or maybe a tweak or two. You know, something comes out occasionally, though. Yeah. And you gas for it. And I haven't gassed in a long... I'm talking... <laughs> I haven't gassed in... I feel like I'm like, you know, this... Hi, I'm an, I'm an addict, and it's, it's been 1,600 <laughs> days since my last... But here's the deal. Some stuff has come out recently. Uh-huh. That has made me gas, not because I feel like I need it, like as an you know artistically or to get my ideal sound, but there's some toys out there yes. that are kind of like, why you got to make that pedal in limited numbers and make me <laughs> pay for it on the secondhand market? The first thing that comes to mind, well, first of all, you asked about my sound. So my sound, absolutely, my sound, as far as the gear list would go, is. Two amplifiers, or well, there's three, but I currently don't have one in my possession anymore. I sold it to a, a friend of mine here, uh, a songwriter guy. Um, three amps, my 68 super bass plexi, mm-hmm. 50 watt, mm-hmm. uh, my 93 Diaz CD100, <laughs> which you know, is, uh, and you're, you're giggling, <laughs> you're, you're like, <laughs> which has the reverb and the trim on it, which not all of them did. And the third amp, which I do not have in my possession anymore, uh, is a 58 tweed twin low power mm. between those three amps. That is it for me. Like, that's it. I've, I've burned through, you know, I've been through every fender in the book, silver black brown tweed i've been through almost every one they ever made um marshall's same thing um you know the vox thing never i i love so much british music but it's like i don't and i listen to british music more like as a big picture so when i put on like oh let's say elbow or, or Oasis mm-hmm. or the Rolling Stones. Well, the Rolling Stones don't count because they do use tweeds, yeah. but like Lenny Kravitz or, and he's not necessarily British, but he basically is, <laughs> uh, the Beatles, like that's all that Vox thing. And I've never really identified like John Jorgensen, the session player plays for Elton John. And he's actually on this poster back here. Nice. Uh, he was known for the Vox thing. And it's like, I love Jorgensen's playing. I love every part he's ever written for every song he's ever been on. I like his tone. I love his tone. I think he's one of the greatest players alive. But it's like, does that make me want a Vox? No, because I just don't like boxes with my hands and my sound and the way that I play. And I've never had a gig where like the Vox was like required, you know. Um, I've had a couple of train wreck clones um and they were awesome but like i just you know whenever i took a good long look at it i was like okay it's nice to have the train wreck which is the modded box thing Mm -hmm. but it's just like man i don't know i and so i kind of put a few feelers and sold the train wrecks to a friend of mine here in town who loves it you know um but yes but but anyway so that's my sound. And then a, anything with, you know, a Les Paul or a 335, any Gibson guitar is going to be it for me. I have a couple of Fenders, but, you know, you said the Stevie thing. Okay, so, I mean, 
you're from Texas and you focus on your sound, but at the same time, if you walk into a bar with a Strat, at least when we were growing up, <laughs> it was already assumed what you were going to be doing. And it's like, oh, who's this kid, punk, Steve <laughs> wannabe with his sunburst Strat or his black Strat? You walk in with a Strat and it's immediately assumed. And I think that someone like... Um, you know, Ian Moore did a great job of fighting that every step of the way with his songwriting yeah. and his singing and his playing. Um, you know, not he had the strap body, but it was a telly neck. Yep. <laughs> and he had uh, cool rails in the bridge, I think, right? Is yeah, that what something it was? crazy. Something you wouldn't I think, expect. I think it was the cool rails, maybe. But yeah, so, and then he was plugged into either a super reverb or a matchless or what else? I don't even know. Yeah. But like he fought that. If you think about like his songwriting and his singing and his playing, he fought the stereotype of being an Aust a, a white Austin blues guy at every stage of the way. So it's like props to him. <laughs> like that was hard to do yeah. and he did it. And then I guess, you know, he got tired of it, but like, I love that guy and I love what he stood for, but you know, I don't know, gear-wise, you mentioned toys. It's like, well, Chase Bliss is doing some cool stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't own a single one of their pedals, but I wish I I wish I wish could get my hands on a Generation Loss and play with it. <laughs> it's I don't know if you've ever heard of that one, but that thing is got a feature set on it that I've never seen before. Yeah. It can turn your sound really low-fi. It can turn it warbly like uh, a record with the artifacts, like a vintage vinyl with the artifacts thing. They 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 advertise it as a VHS tape simulator, hmm. but um, it can do like really weird chorus vibratos, lo-fi, static, um, and then you know coupled with all the little dip switches and stuff, it's like <laughs> I could I would love to just be in a studio situation, if nothing else, with that pedal and writing little hooks or not hooks, but like writing little parts, like having like a comp day where you're just doing parts for a few hours yeah, yeah, and yeah. just use that here and there. Like that's, that's where that pedal would be fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, are, is there anything that you see lately that like you're just kind of, that makes you go, hmm. Man, the last time that that happened was the Volante. And I'm still yeah. still digging into the Volante. You know what I mean? Still kind of like finding like, oh, man, this thing's deep. But you touched on it earlier, and I wanted to talk to you about it because I feel like fuzz is a journey. Like it's a – you you know what I mean? Like uh, I started with a black big, big muff, and okay. I remember plugging it in and just literally like saying, what like i thought this was gonna make me sound like santana because he played a big and it, and it wasn't right. so we have this segment called what's in the box so <laughs> we have oh, a boy. box in front of me and i'm gonna open the box and we're gonna talk about whatever's in the box so you know what's in the box i know it's in the box and i picked it just for you which oh, is fun. funny okay. because you talked about it already and of course it's fuzz but hey, Spaceman Space Sputnik one. And, you know, I thought who better to talk about fuzz than Austin, because it's a journey. 
and I've seen you go through, you know, your fuzz journey and I've been through a fuzz journey and it's very confusing. So if you had a younger player, say, say we do have a few younger listeners, how would you describe fuzz? How would you tell them to use it? Like, give us some, like, you know, some, somebody that has some miles on fuzz, give us some insight. Well, that's a, that's a very philosophical way of putting the fuzz thing. That's, that's, <laughs> but, but fuzz pedals as, as, a, as an effect has been a journey, you know, historically in the pedal world. And any pedal maker will tell you that, yeah. even though the core of it's the same. I think younger guys will have heard the White Stripes and Jack White. I think younger guys will have heard the Black Keys mm. and Dan Oyerbach. Um, who else comes to mind? Even some of just the more lo-fi sounding sounding music, like your Amy Winehouse, was mm. very kind of funky and whatever. L. King is more of a modern interpretation of that. Um, and so I think fuzz currently what we're seeing is the hallmark of like very indie sounding music. Mm. And because of the internet and because of Spotify and all of that, indie music is having a heyday right now. Mm -hmm. And I am here for it. Because to me, as a songwriter, the, the best songs are usually written by these people. And they are the most adventurous production-wise. They are the explorers production-wise. They will explore the space. They'll be the ones to go buy the new Strymon pedal tomorrow or today, tomorrow. Today. And tweak with every knob until it sounds completely whacked out. And they'll have a great song with that on the track. They're going to be <laughs> the first ones to do it. You know, the Volante, a little more straightforward. So, but that's, that's the thing is like, because indie music and indie pop is having such a heyday right now, we are getting to hear lots of great fuzz textures. And Josh Scott at JHS, I feel like the dude never misses a chance to talk about fuzz in some <laughs> way. And he's right. Cause I think Josh is roughly, we're, you and I are kind of in his similar age group. And he did an episode on the love pedal stuff. Yeah. Or no, okay. it's love tone. Love, love tone, tone, love tone. Yeah, meatball. Well, I've been through all those pedals because I went through a love tone phase from Hades. And I loved every single pedal they made. Um, the brown source was not meant to be a fuzz, but it's kind of fuzzy. It's it's not very compressed. Um, the, cheese, the, the cheese source mm -hmm. was the combination of the two. So it was the big cheese. Uh, with that selector switch on it. Um, so you've got like that kind of thing. So I would say to a younger person, you know, figure out, you know, what are you listening to? Cause it ain't just Hendrix anymore. And yeah. it ain't just David Gilmore anymore. Um, you know, for guys like our age and older, it's going to come down to Hendrix and Gilmore. So you're going to look at the big muff stuff. You're going to look at the fuzz face stuff. And then all the iterations of those two. <laughs> and yeah, because there's a lot. So like the Pete Cornish stuff is basically just a really fancy big muff uh, with some tweakability. The P2 is what I think it's called. The the analog man sun face is is basically a clone of a of a, of a fuzz face. It's not sun face fuzz. Yeah, that's what it's called. And I have a I have a sun face a sun lion here yeah. that's got the, the fuzz face on one side and then the Beano boost, which is just a treble booster on the other side. And both of those are like fuzz, you know, circuits just in one box. But, uh, 
my fuzz journey started off with listening to Hendrix. And I think that's a lot of us. And then you hear like the David Gilmore stuff, like I mentioned, and it's pretty searing, but it's also smooth. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it's like, uh, you know, some of those live Stevie cuts are very brittle on the top. end. If it's fuzz, but I don't think it is. I think it's just the the amp. (laughs) I think it's the high end of the amp distorting the, the microphones that's recording it. Um, but shoot, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, late 90s was all Marshall and Mesa. Early 2000s was all Mesa, early Mesa and Diesel and VHT and then Bogner. Country has never really been fuzz-friendly. Country music has never really capitalized on that, I don't think. Um, you know, if you a distorted amp does not count as fuzz. Like, yeah, we're talking yeah, about yeah. that. So it's like... But then I remember hearing Thick Freakness by the Black Keys. And I was like, this is awesome. (laughs) It's like a blues album is what it is, man. It was like, dude, Thick Freakness is a great album. Uh, Super fuzzy, super vibey. Doyle Bramhall, of course, kind of reviving the blues fuzz spirit. John Mayer recorded that track on one of his albums, The Crossroads, which was very pinched fuzz, pinched fuzz, you know. He kind of brought that to the mainstream, you know, blues guys with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, you can get really cerebral about it, but, uh, you know, silicone germanium and then all the little different tr- transistors and diodes in between. Um, but you know, what are your influences? Who are you trying to sound like? Be honest with yourself. Who do you want to copy? (laughs) Yeah. And because we all trying to copy somebody, it's at least sometimes. And then from there, as a player, as a working musician, ask yourself, okay, where does this fit in the context of what I'm doing as a sideman? Or if you're an artist, you know, is this what I'm trying to achieve? Because I can tell you like the fuzz face Sun Lion is never turned on when I'm doing a sideman gig. <laughs> and I refuse to pull it off the board because that's like, I like it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Like the only way I could see myself using it live with another act, another artist, is if I was running into a more of a rock type setting and I needed a solo sound, a lead sound that had a little bit of extra more like top end hair on it. Mm. But that's super rare because most of the time they just want that the sound is to sort of push the mids forward a little bit, which, you know, there's pedals that do that too. Um, But yeah, just be honest with yourself about your influences. Look at the guitar they're playing and look at the, you know, look at the amp they're playing and listen to the songs too. Like, you know, if they're doing a lot of like staccato stuff, like the John Mayer Crossroads thing, okay, that's your pinched fuzz thing. But if it's more like, you know, Hendrix doing, you know... That's more, you know, that you're getting to hear more of the the decay of each strum. And yeah. if you're getting to hear, you know, that beats, you know. You know what I mean? Oops. <laughs> Sorry, I lost you. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that that's that's to me, you know, listen to the timbre of the the instrument and all that stuff. And so 
Well, for people beyond special influences, because there's tons of fuzzes out there. Yes. <laughs> I just don't know. Ocean of fuzz. Yeah, I just don't know. Like, I would be curious to try a big muff again at some point, or a muff style. The the JHS muffalata, that seems fun because <laughs> it's like all the muffs in one pedal, and that's fun. You know, I know guys that have that pedal on their board studio guys session guys and it's it's got some very usable sounds in there hmm. but I, I mean i don't what what so you're rocking the sputnik is that on the board uh the, i got so this was my my grail so i put this on my small rock and roll board so like just dirty i mean just the old like gnarly big sound that i yeah. i want to play and then I put the Sputnik 3 on my actual like, board that I take out because I'm like, if anything happens to that one, it's going to be at bars. If it gets a beer spilled on it, you know, I can replace it. This one I can't replace, so it goes like on my small – like. So you have two different Sputniks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one and then the three. Uh, the two is like – it's like the uh, yeah. compressor. <laughs> it's a compressor size, so it's like oh, huge. And I, and, and I took off my Cali, uh, the big Cali, because it was just so huge. So same idea. I'll never get a I'm two. Shocked. Where is that pedal? The Cali? Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's it's in the studio. <laughs> once well, I, once I saw the prices where they are, I think I saw a Reverb uh, sold one this week for two grand. I was like, I spent five hundred bucks on that pedal. I'm the. I'm, I it's going to be in the studio. Fifty on mine, and I had three <laughs> of them, and I like. You know, it was great sound. I mean, I have the slide rig, but that's two compressors. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Like I'm getting, and I'm using it only for. I don't have a slide up here. I only use it for slide stuff, and it's perfect. Nice. It's perfect. But like, I had a, I had a Spaceman Mercury Three. Oh man. That's my favorite one that I ever had. And I don't know, I don't, here's the thing, like, I know why I liked it, but I don't know why the market likes it so much. Like, because to me, it's a selective color boost. So you pick the color, the EQ curve, mm -hmm. that is, you pick your color with the one through five, you pick the amount with your knob to turn the output up or down. And then you have the harmonics knob, which is like, the most subtle knob ever <laughs> put on a pedal I think I've ever heard. So like, I know why I liked it because I was using it as a boost for an amp. Occasionally I would use it as a boost for another pedal, but I don't like stacking pedals. I'm oh, not okay, that okay. Kind of at all. Um, so I, I quickly got, that's why in fact I sold it was because I was like, eh, you know, I can boost with another pedal and I'm not stacking anything because stacking for me sucks. So it's like, what do I need this for? The prices were going up. I bought it for four fifty, five hundred bucks, and I think I sold it for like seven fifty, eight hundred bucks. Nice. You know. But now the Mercury threes though, I mean, people want twelve hundred bucks for yeah. the things. And it's just like it's the spaceman rarity. I I more than anything, that's it's a great sounding pedal. But I think the Spaceman collectible crew, you know, sort of gets off on, you know, oh, I got to put my collection together. And so then the Mercury 3 is always this one that, you know, a lot of people don't have. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the Mercury, what, 4 is supposedly out there now? Yeah, or yeah. He made, he made a few um, 
a few iterations, which he said he'd never make a Sputnik 3. He swore he'd never do it. And then just kind of like sneaked it, snuck it in. He snuck it in with an envelope filter. So if you got it on the secret mission, he sent out 10 Sputnik 3s and 10 envelope filters. Now, and people were like, well, I wish I would have gotten the filter. And some people were like, well, I wish I would have gotten the Sputnik. But now they're, oh. now they're readily available. So okay. you can go pick one up fairly reasonably, way more reasonably than the Sputnik one. So, okay. um, but hey, let so me what ask. does the Sputnik one sound like? So we we a beat them really close, and it was like, oh, they're extremely. I mean, they're pretty close. But the difference yeah. in the three is that it has the momentary um, drift function. So remember that. So it's, it goes crazy. It, you oh. can, yeah, it goes crazy and, and just oscillates in, in weird ways. So on the actual, the old Sputnik, uh, the drift function is either on or off. So it's one of these like, you know, switches. On the two, he put it on a on an actual switch. And on the three, he just made it smaller and, and you can momentary it if you want to, which is kind of okay. cool. You can just go crazy, balls to a wall, like just instantly. <laughs> so is that like, would you use that in a rock context, like like hard rock or how would you... Okay. Yeah, so one of uh one of our one of our new songs, it has a heaven ending and a hell ending, and the hell ending has Sputnik, <laughs> and the heaven ending is just that's, real nice. That's creatively very cool. <laughs> a heaven or a hell ending, that's yeah. clever. But hey, let me ask you this: for those that don't know, uh, perfect pitch, blessing or a curse? Well, especially playing with so many people. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing, like. It helped me in high school when I was competing in voice because I could hear down the hall what key the sight reading was in. Whoa. I know. Just, you just blew so, my mind. You just blew yeah, my mind. See, so, so, you know, you would <laughs> sing your selection or you would play or sing your selection piece, the 20, however many measures it was. And then after that, there's a sight reading portion, right? And so I'm like, you know, they call your group up and you're in the hall and you're listening down the hall and I'm and I'm over here and I'm I'm listening to whoever's singing and I'm like, Oh, okay, key of A. And I'm thinking, All right, putting my brain in that mode, you know, of looking at this you know, because as high school you're not you can be a great sight reader in high school, but you can always get better. So I'm thinking, Okay, key of A and I'm listening down the hall and I'm like, Okay, it has a couple of jumps, key, you know. So yeah, it was an advantage there. <laughs> it's been embarrassing to me in a couple of settings, or or you could say savior too, but embarrassing slash savior in um, some group ensembles. So like college vocal groups, the choir director blows the wrong pitch on the pitch pipe, and you know give them kind of a weird look or you know something, <laughs> and he'll and he'll yeah. And that happened many times. Um, my first time with it, though, I, I got in trouble. Uh, I was in choir in high school. I didn't want to be in choir in high school, by the way. Oh. But I had to have a fine art credit. This is my first year. And uh, we were singing this song by Morton Lawrence and called Set Me as a Seal, key of D. And at the end of it, it has this very low, for the basses, it has a low, a low D. So if you're a, a, a guy in high school hitting this low D, you think you're hot stuff. <laughs> um, so anyway, conductor go, the conductor goes to the keyboard and, and rolls up a D-flat major chord. 
and I'm looking around the room and I'm like new, I'm like been in choir a month and I'm looking around like this and everyone's like ready to go. And I'm thinking, what piece are we singing? Are we singing set me as a seal? Like he said, we were singing set me as a seal, but that's not D that's not a D major. What are we doing? And so he, no, no kidding. He gets through the first measure and stops conducting and looks at me and, and he says, what's the problem? Why are you not singing? And I said, I just didn't know what we were singing. I'm sorry. He goes, I said, pull out, set me as a seal by Morton Lordson. I said, no, I, I heard, I just, but I, you didn't, you didn't play a D major chord on the keyboard. And he goes, and everyone by this point is looking at me and kind of <laughs> like, what? like, you know, you can hear it. And he's like, and he, and he gets real like weird. He goes, how the hell did you know that? <laughs> and I and I'm like I'm looking around I look at my buddy John standing next to me and I look at you know this dude in the tenor section I'm looking over here I'm like isn't that I was like and I, and I literally said that so I said isn't that what we do here and he goes you're you're gonna stay after class today we're gonna have a talk and I was like oh god <laughs> and, and he goes to me and he closes the door and he goes so how the heck did you know I didn't play a D major? Like all happy. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I just, I mean, isn't that like, like I said, isn't that what we do here? And he's like, no, but how did you know? And I said, I don't understand now what we're talking about. He goes, come here. Takes me to the keyboard. He says, what note is this? Bing. I tell him bang, bong, bang. He does this for like a minute. He's like, oh, okay. So you have relative pitch. And I'm like, great. It wasn't until I like was tuning a guitar by ear that I figured out that it was within two hertz. Like my ability to discern was about two hertz or thereabouts. And so that's how I found out I had it. Blessing or a curse though? I mean, shoot, dude, I don't know. I Here's where it's bad is if I'm playing in a, si a sideman situation and I get to the gig, like let's say it's a gig, like I'm, it's a one-off, like I'm the hired guy, whatever. Yeah. I've learned the whole set or whatever it is, all their songs. And they say, oh, yeah, by the way, we tuned down a half a step. <laughs> and I'm like, well, damn, like I spent the last like three days listening to not just the songs and not just the progressions and not just the hooks. But I'm also like what goes into the choice of a key, like there's a feel with every yes, key. But like, yes. I know that like A is brighter then then a flat or you know g is different than there's just you know there's little differences not like colors or auras or any weird stuff but like there is something that goes into a key that contributes to the feel of how a song will feel yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know i don't know any other way to say it than that like whenever you listen to like um hendrix's machine gun man He's playing it in the E position, but his guitar is tuned down a whole step. And you can hear it if you take your Strat and you tune your Strat down a whole step to where E becomes D, technically, you will hear and, and you start playing, you'll hear the slack in the strings that Hendrix has. Yes. You'll you'll hear the color in the sound. So when he hits that, you know, you know, but it's and that univibe is going and all the sound is swirling around. You're like, this is hypnotic. I think a lot of that feel does come from 
the key that you choose, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it can be a challenge when someone says, like, you know, the the song we're playing, you know, is... And I've learned it that way, and I've learned the riff, and I've learned the lick, and I've learned the feel. Oh, by the way, we tuned down a half step. So I'm like, I have two choices. By the I way. I can turn my guitar down a half step to play everything in root position, or I can be the a-hole and not tune down, but just put my hands in a different spot. So a lot of times, that's what I do. I don't actually tune down. I just... And I'll just move my hands. And so they're like, okay, you know, you remember this song? It's E D A F. And it's like, I'm just like, don't say anything because <laughs> I'm transposing right now. You yes. don't know what I'm doing, you know? And uh, occasionally I've been called out for it. Like, why don't you just tune down? Why don't you just tune down, bro? And I'm like, you don't understand. I, I, I don't know. I just can't. Man. I just don't want to. So three, so it's three days a usual when somebody calls you, boom, 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 the guitar player, Austin, hey man, how many days do you, is the typical, and how many songs is the typical, like, you know? Right, so right now I, I'm working on a two-hour show as a sideman that's happening tomorrow night, and I found out about it yesterday morning. Oh. Um, it's a two-hour show. Some of the songs I have heard enough from the artist like to have a familiarity with yeah um because i'm such a fan of hers uh, her name is rachel hoarder she's basically like if nashville was to have a version of ariana grande she would be it oh, like nice. she's like five she's like little short little skinny huge voice nice. huge huge voice big voice r&b style um and her normal guy, uh, Seth, is a fantastic player. And he had something, I guess there was a crossing of the wires or whatever. And Rachel and I have a connection just because of our mutual love of R&B. I think she sells it a, a little bit better than I ever could. <laughs> but but we both love it. And she's seen me do my thing. And I've seen her do her thing. So on a two-hour show, I've had, you know, about roughly it'll be three days by the time we play. Okay. Um, and I would say I've heard, I'm familiar enough with maybe eight of the songs. So I'm learning the others. Okay. Um, and again, nothing is, you know, we're not talking about crazy challenging, um, you know, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker. It's, it's a lot of pop, you know, pop music is relatively simple. Yeah. Okay. Um, as long as you, you know, stay, stay ahead of the curve on your own musicianship and try to challenge yourself at all times or some of the time someone whips out you know an hour's worth of pop music that you've never played before and and you can kind of have fun with it because the changes are not complicated and you can kind of pick the the sounds that you want to dial in on your guitar and then how you're going to funk with it a little bit like i might use an envelope filter here or there just because it's going to be fun yeah um so, but then other times, like in the Broadway honky tonks and bars and stuff, it's the day of. Oh, wow. Um, because musicians, even here, even here, um, where everyone I think is very pretty darn serious, occasionally you have the dude that calls out that can't do it. Um, I got called an hour before a, a session to, uh, yesterday. Um, I got a text <laughs> at one o'clock. And they said, hey, 
do you want to come to the studio and, you know, do cut this song with us, for us? And I said, well, sure, I'd love to. When were you thinking? And he, I'm like sweaty from the gym. But like, uh, how about how about now? And I'm like, it's a 30-minute drive, so I'll be there in about 40 minutes. They said, cool, see you then. So they Dropbox me the rough and on my phone, and I'm in the car driving 30 minutes to Music Row and, you know, had 30 minutes to, you know, get it in my brain. I get in the studio. It's a working studio. It's a, it's a working, um, it's a working studio. So there's no, it's just a control room. There's no like tracking room. It's, mm. it's one of those smaller situations. Um, and so we go in, I take a, I ask, you know, what parts do I need to, to do? They said, we need you on all the choruses and the bridge. I said, great. And so we listened through, made sure the sound was there did that that took about 45 minutes to get everything that they wanted and then they said how about a vocal how about a background harmony vocal <laughs> well by then i've already listened to the song for 45 minutes you know yeah. on repeat so it's in there and i'm thinking okay well what do you what are you thinking i said here's what i hear and so i they said great do it and so that was another you know 45 minutes and then afterwards we went to mexican food and i came home <laughs> so, you know, sometimes it's like that. It just depends. But I've been very lucky to, you know, even amongst the environment that we're in, you know, I've played a, a big, uh, a big show at a brewery down south of town. We were opening for Josh Grayson, who's like some American Idol guy from several years back. We opened for that show, and that was great. Uh, so that was outdoors, kind of a festival-like environment even though there were not as many people as a festival there um did you know a bar gig did a private party gig in minnesota last weekend um so that was 18 hours up and then 18 hours back in the van and um and then this week studio session last minute and then tomorrow night will be a a winery with rachel for a two-hour show there and so you just kind of try to be nimble and yeah. be flexible. And, and, you know, I would say never say, I never say no to anything unless yeah. I just can't do it. If I'm physically not playing or here, I just never say no to anything. And, um, you know, I've been very lucky to be called and to do a lot of different things. And, and obviously being a singer helps some when you're a side man, yeah. you know, play rhythm, play lead, play some colorful parts. And then you can sing harmony, and and you know you're not you're not, you know, a, a druggie or a or a drunk or something. You know, you just present. You know, be a nice person, and I think it works out really well. Yeah. So you touched on my my next question. My next question was having to do with keeping. Um, so it's easy, or it's easier to be a guitar player, and if you're not feeling well, still do the gig. How do you do it as a vocalist? Because, you know, in different environments. You grew up in South Texas where Pollen was like a murder, like a mass murderer of vocalists. <laughs> so how do you like, you know, how do you keep up that, that, because I'm sure you have to be a top tier, you are a top tier singer, but you have to bring your top tier singing in addition to your top tier playing. How do you keep up with it all? Because your schedule seems like it can change in a moment's notice. 
It did. You know, when we got to Minnesota, it was 35 degrees at night when we got into town. Oh, my gosh. And the, 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 the tops of the trees were already starting to turn red there. Oh, wow. In case you don't know, everywhere else in the country but South Texas has four seasons. <laughs> and so we just have summer. go through this cycle of birth and death. The plants birth and die twice, once a year each. So, like, and... So basically I get to Minnesota, it's 35, we get out of the van, we get out of the van to get, to get gas in Rockford, Illinois and grab a Chicago style pizza, by the way, which that was great. Nice. Um, and we're out of the van. We're like, it is flipping cold up here. It's, <laughs> it's like 50 there. And we were like, Holy God, we get back in the van. We're eating, we're driving, driving, driving. We get to the place where we're staying. It's two in the morning and it's 35. I look on my phone, it's 35 degrees. And it's like, I just, I don't even know. So I get in the, the room and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little something in here, you know, in my, in my nasal cavity and in the back of my nose. And I wanted to sneeze. And that's the trick, like little pro tip. If you have to sneeze, try to resist it. Cause once you sneeze, that's, that's the floodgate opening right there. And your, oh, okay. your, your, your tissue is exposed. You know, you're at, you're literally, when you sneeze, yes, it's a reaction, but then you inflame this right here behind here. And that's when the pores open up and all the receptors open up. So it can kind of be a runaway train. Okay. Okay. So if you can resist it, one of the things that I do is I'll get, um, some like tissue paper and I'll just wet it and jam it in my nostrils to keep from sneezing. Anyway, that's not what you asked. That's just what I did the other night. Um, <laughs> hey, it works. I would say personal, personal health you know, hydration. I know this, you hear people say it a lot, but I think in my experience, hydration has been key to so many things. Even, even with girls, you know, girls look at each other and say, Oh, your skin looks so beautiful. What are you doing? You know? And they'll say, Oh, I just use this, but you know, I just drink a lot of water. I mean, it's just staying hydrated is the foundation for so much. I found for me as a singer and as just a human being, um, so once you stay hydrated, then from there, it's, it's just about, you know, how susceptible are you to allergies or diseases? Whenever I moved away from Texas, I was living in Northwest Arkansas in the Ozarks and it was very different there. It was very dry and there was a lot of trees and things I had never been used to. And so, um, a friend of mine said, Oh, you need to get you some local honey. Huh. And I was like, what kind of, hoodoo voodoo crap is this like <laughs> what else are you selling you know where's you know but it, it was actually kind of interesting I, I put some honey on I got a jar of local honey from there and put it in some tea and drizzled it on some biscuits over the months and just kind of found ways to ingest some honey and the following allergy season I didn't have any issues and I didn't really have any issues after that so when I wow. moved here I was like you know I did try and find some honey again maybe it was just a fluke but maybe it's a thing well now we know that's kind of a thing it's yeah, you yeah, know yeah. science might be sketchy but it does seem to work for a lot of people it has worked for me and so i you know i've got some honey laying around which helps you know periodically but it's not like an elixir um as far as the gigs though i mean technically speaking like on a broadway cover set honky tonk bar gig that's going to be a three and a half hour gig with <clears throat> no breaks usually. Oof. 
for the front Crazy. man. Now, if you have a great band, you can sneak away for 10 minutes while they play, or maybe your, your bass player can play a song and sing a song or something, and you can get away for 10 minutes. But um, what I learned with all of that was to approach the longer bar gigs a little differently, not to, and this sounds kind of like tacky, but not to give 100%. Okay. You can't yeah, give yeah, 100% yeah. like three and a half hours worth. Um, I found that if I withheld and, and gave like 75%, 80%, you know, in terms of that physical body energy, in terms of that going for it on the note mm -hmm. type stuff, um, that helped a lot, staying hydrated during the gig. There, even in bars, um, there are certain people are going to buy you drinks. And um, <laughs> there are certain things that, that are not good to drink, at least for me. Um, beer and wine just not working. They, they tend to dehydrate me really quickly right here for oh, some okay. weird okay. reason. I, like if I was sipping a beer with you right now instead of the, the coffee, like I would be feeling dry and hoarse mm. and all that stuff. I don't know why beer and wine do that to me. Okay. Whereas with something just more simple like tequila, well, I can drink six, seven, this sounds horrible, like six or seven shots of tequila in a night and water too um, and be completely fine. And I know that sounds like such a terrible thing to say, but I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it's just true for me. Yeah. Does your um, clothes fall off when you drink the tequila? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't do that i never have done that despite all the musicians stereotypes that, that there are uh and that song i've played too many times thank you but um yeah i mean i would say vocally just don't overexert yourself learn how to resist the urge to constantly go for it 100 percent. and it doesn't mean that you're slacking it or you're phoning it in but you just have to learn how to conserve i think yeah and that's where your great training it's kind of like pedagogy in general like with your guitar playing or if you're a pianist or whatever it's your pedagogy and your technique that ultimately will get you through the hardest passages or the longest most stressful gigs like like even military people you know they say just remember your training remember your training and it's like just remember your training like stand with your feet even weighted between each each leg you know yeah. don't lean on one side even if you're a guitar player try to resist leaning over to that that one side um that way if you're standing straight well then your spine is straight and your diet and all this is straight and you can breathe easily and you know wear your guitar in a spot that's like not going to put, pull your back or lean your back or or, a, and it, you know, wear it in a spot that you can actually take a breath and it can move just enough, you know, because we all want to look good in pictures. So we all suck in our stomachs. <laughs> but pedagogically, as a vocal vocal technique, that's the worst thing you can possibly do because yeah. you're immediately setting tension from the beginning. So that's why I say, like, you know, if your your technique will save you. And if you're out there slamming your guitar and raking it hard to put on a show, well, you can do that for like a song or two or three, but you still got like hours to go. <laughs> so try to, you know, keep it, keep it a little more relaxed and stuff like that. I don't know, man. That's how I do it. <laughs> so much good stuff, dude. So much good stuff. Let me ask you, is there anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to cover? 
Well, um, I think it's important for everybody, musicians, that is. Um, you know, we're, we're a very fortunate bunch to be able to even consider this as a career option. Um, you know, I, I, I think that if you're a musician, you know, you always should be thankful first. Yeah. Um, because we, we sign up for a lifestyle that sometimes is very, very uncertain and, um, has been deemed unnecessary currently. It's yeah. not an essential business, right? Entertainment yeah. is not essential. And that, that was a very hard thing for, I think a lot of us to hear. And, um, you know, some of us get into this game to change the world or some of us get into it to, uh, because our parents did it and we don't know much else to do or because we just love it or because we, we were lucky enough to have opportunities early on and, um, you know, staying, staying grateful and, 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 and thankful in the midst of all of that. And it leads to everything else. You know, you, if you don't, if you stay grateful and thankful, then, you're never the a-hole with an attitude in, in, in the setting. And then, you know, even if you're not playing at the biggest, you know, arena with the biggest artists or whatever, the fact that you have a good attitude about where you are, that's, that's everything because then maybe you do a good job at the gig and, and maybe somebody will recommend you for something else based on, man, they were so great to work with. Yeah. They were so great to work with. Not only could they play and they were prepared, but they were so easy as a person um, because there's tons of great players that are not the nicest people. Yeah. And they do have that chip on their shoulder and they, they do maybe have a, a, a substance problem. And, and, you know, you hear about it a lot, or at least I do. Um, so I would just say, you know, focus on your craft and try to love what you do first. And then also you know, remember that you're presenting yourself to the world. Like they see you before they hear you a lot of the time mm. and, uh, try to present yourself in a way that's, you know, that's that they can understand you and, and, and that they can see you for who you are, which is hopefully a nice, decent person. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the gigs you'll get will be based upon that more than your actual playing. There's some musicians that I've, that I have played with and that, you know, have come and gone or whatever that, that I see. And they're not the greatest players. They're not the, you know, whatever their instrument, the king of their instrument at all. But like, they're so easy to work with and they have such a great attitude. And, you know, a lot of times that as weird as it is, that sometimes is who you'll meet out there when you're when you're playing with other people so i'll just say you know again love what you do and work hard at it but also be a good person and try to be nice and easy to work with don't make too many demands and just you know, that's what i would say that's i think the, the rules of you asked you know that's the rules of kind of they're called the rules of the road but yeah. also like just general etiquette you know um i think that we see you know, in terms of covering stuff, what's on my mind a lot lately, if, if you're asking, is uh, the Instagram, YouTube world mm -hmm. has created a new type of musician 
that is used is that is not used to playing out in the jungle mm-hmm. and um, they're used <laughs> to having 40 50 takes they're used to being on camera um, as opposed to being in the moment and um, you know it's great for a lot of things but uh, I personally um, I, I personally don't you know, don't follow a great many of those folks because I'm, I'm not on social media much anyway, but also just because like the guys that I like tend to be just old farts, I guess, maybe (laughs) just older, older, and they don't care if anyone's looking at them. And maybe I should care more that, that, you know, people are watching. I've definitely needed to focus more on, you know, smiling a little bit more <laughs> you know like shave every once in a while <laughs> uh stuff like that but oh, yeah, just basic stuff it's not you know i don't know well hey speaking of w- one last thing one last thing so your single comes out the second week of november where can people find it spotify uh austin skinner now you know uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, all the all the typical iTunes, everywhere music is available or sold. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook and all Twitter and everything. Uh, YouTube, it'll be available everywhere. Nice. So just Austin Skinner, no, no underscores or T. Te- nope. Nope. Um, Easy peasy. Yeah, just if it's but if it's rap music, it's not me because there is an Austin <laughs> Skinner who is a very talented. Uh, modern day rap rapper sorry i think i lost you again are we there yeah, okay. yeah we're there there's there's an austin skinner who is from like virginia or something okay okay and, and he and i occasionally get tagged in each other's stuff yeah and, and he's a very talented you know trap rap type guy and uh and we always get a kick out of seeing each other tagged and stuff so if it sounds <laughs> like trap music it's not me, but you definitely should check him out anyway. So, <laughs> Well, dude, man, we appreciate you being here so much, dude. Go check out Austin Skinner. Find him on the web and be looking for that single the second week in November. Austin, thanks so much, man. We appreciate it, brother. Thanks, man. It's good to see you as always. All right. We'll see you soon on the Bandemic Podcast. <laughs>